All right. Um, this is the second of three sessions where we're trying to think through um, this big issue of gender in culture and um, in scripture. Um, so um, today we're going to have a focus on the scriptures, although um, really we'll get as far as the first two chapters um, and, uh, and then see what um, room there is next week um, to, to cover some more things. Um, but I hope that will be um, a help to us. The plan, like last time, is to um, cover um, some material and then um, to have some good space for questions. Um, at the end of the handout, too, there's an opportunity to write down questions that you've got left at the end of this session, um, and that will help me put together next week. Um, I want to make sure that we're um, looking at the questions that you've got and the things you'd like to cover as we move from Scripture into practice. Um, and thinking, actually, how do we live this out, and how does it work down into some of the difficult conversations and situations that you might be, might be facing. That's the plan. Uh, as um, James said this morning, you don't have to have been here last week, um, but I will give a very quick recap. You might find it helpful to go back and, and have a listen. The, the big thrust of last week was to say, um, where has the whole transgender movement come from how has it become so persuasive? How does it become so charged as a debate? And um, what we were suggesting last week is that the theme of power helps you understand um, what is going on. Um, the thought that the world that we live in is not a very safe place, um, but rather there are, um, it looks more like a prison, a prison that sets out very clear expectations of what you have to be like. It has um, categories that you have to try and um, fit into and uh, you are being controlled and manipulated into being something. Um, that is um, how many people see the world. Um, and so the only solution that people suggest is to, to throw off all of the categories that people are trying to tell you are normal, are natural, because all of those are just ways that people are trying to, to make you conform. Um, to, to understand that background, I think, explains a lot. Um, it explains why this stuff is so persuasive to so many people, because actually there's a lot of truth in it. Um, we are bombarded with ideas of this is what you have to be, this is what you should look like, and it all feels very manipulative. Um, it feels very controlling. Um, and so um, a lot of truth is in this. Um, it's why it proves persuasive to a lot of people. Um, it explains the passion of this debate as well, the sense of righteousness to it all. Um, if you see the world as an oppressive place and people need to be liberated from it, then that has a kind of moral crusade feeling to it. Um, it feels like this is an issue of freedom and liberty, um, of civil rights, as we saw last time. Um, it explains the passion. Um, it also explains the, the explosion of all of these new different categories and labels that people are giving themselves. Um, that's, a, that's a newer thing. Um, if you were talking about this issue maybe 30 or 40 years ago, the idea of male and female would still be fairly established. If you met somebody who felt some level of confusion, they might say, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body. But they'd have thought of those as the two basic options, male or female. Um, now, of course, as you know, um, there are many, many more labels. And this idea of power helps us understand quite why. Because the argument is that every label that you've heard, male and female included, are other people sticking a label on you, assigning an identity to you, deciding who you are. Um, and that's why 
there are as, almost as many labels and names as there are people because you're encouraged to think, I'm going to define for myself who I am um, rather than take somebody else's category um, for myself. Uh, it also, as we said last time, presents some challenges to thinking, how do we respond well to this? If there is such a suspicion of, um, of nature, of the idea that there are some fixed categories, um, if people look at the world and they think all you're actually going to find are layers of power and manipulation and other people trying to control you, um, then it's going to be pretty hard to go and speak about a God who made the world and who expects us to live in a certain way, um, a God who is authoritative. That just seems threatening to our culture that is so suspicious of power. That's in two minutes what we spent last time thinking about. And as we move towards the Scriptures, I want to have those particular things in mind to think, how do we now think biblically in light of some of those challenges? And so we're going to have a reading from the Bible. Nina's going to bring us a reading from Genesis chapter 1 and into chapter 2. So if you want to find Genesis chapter 1 in your Bibles, there are Bibles at the back. If anyone needs one, do pop a hand up. Uh, and um, as Nina reads to us, and we're going to pick it up at uh, Genesis 1, verse 27, um, the question I'd like you to be thinking about as Nina reads is simply this. Um, how does God use his power in this passage? How does God use his power in this passage? Um, a moment to find the passage, a moment to grab a microphone, and then Nina will read. So that's Genesis 1:27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth, and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. 
The Lord God made all kinds of trees in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. Kush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. Gratis. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Him and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Wonderful, Nina. Thank you very much for, um, for reading for us. Lots that we need to cover there. Um, but that first question, what sort of God is this? What sort of world do we live in with this God in charge? How does God here use his power? What did you notice? Hugely generous. Yeah, some of the ways that we see that. Okay. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, three wonderful things there. Um, the, the generosity of God towards this humanity. Um, so notice there, verse, chapter 1, verse 29. I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. Um, there is, out of all of the trees, there is only um, one tree that they are not permitted to, to eat from. Um, someone's really lovely phrase that the Garden of Eden is a garden of yes with one no. Um, but so much of that garden is provided for their enjoyment, um, the seeds um, and fruits of every kind of tree. Um, as soon as you start to, to take that um, thought into your mind and you wander the supermarket shelves, one of the things that it should scream at us is God's great generosity. He could have just given us apples. That in itself, what a gift. How many varieties of apples? Some of them fizz, some of them are so sweet, some of them have a real crunch. And then pears, better still. <laughs> some people are with me, some people really aren't. Um, Many, many more things God has given. Um, the land bears these amazing kinds of fruits. And um, then um, the ground as well, verse 11 uh, into 12. Um, there is gold in them, their hills. Um, the gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are there. There are precious stones here. And um, there are rivers that are going to give life to the land and, and water it. Um, so the, the amazing generosity. Um, then, as, as Lois said, the, the way in which God is not a God who holds on to power, but a God who delegates, um, a God who gives authority to Adam and Eve and is not threatened by that. Um, 
In so many human interactions, it feels like it's that kind of zero-sum game. I have power, and if I give some to you, I am lessened. Um, but one of the things that we learn about God through Genesis is how it is not like that with God. Um, do you remember what we heard in John's Gospel recently? He has life in himself. Um, he can give life to others without ever being diminished himself. All of his generosity, God has nothing less for all of that. Um, as he delegates power and gives authority to others, he is no less authoritative and powerful himself. God is not diminished by any of these things. Um, and so he is free to give. There's no way in which creation is some sort of threat to God, some sort of rival. Um, God is not trying to get one over us. Um, the world is a safe place because it is ruled by a generous God. Um, and a personal God, so that lovely thought, and um, the last thing that Lois mentioned, that um, he cares for Adam and draws near and provides for him, um, Eve, that she might be a helper to him, um, and he rejoices over her um, as, um, as she is created. A, a wonderful picture of how the world that we live in isn't actually just a big power play. At the heart of it is a God who is there, who is life and love, and who gives generously. Um, for all that human beings have turned a lot of that into sinful and manipulative ways of being in the world, in the beginning it was not that. Um, there is generous um, power at work here. Um, then we need to see from Genesis 1 and 2 that there are also good limits. Um, in our culture, that sounds like two words that just don't go together. Um, that there could be good limits or healthy constraints on who we are. Um, it's certainly there in Genesis, isn't it? There is the creator and there is his creation that he forms. Um, and um, there are two kinds of human beings, male and female, he created them. Um, that is the human experience. We are either male or female, um, made by God in those two forms. Um, there are limits, there is a fixed nature to, to who we are um, in God's good design. Now, as we've said, that's, that's often an offensive thing for, for people to, to hear. Um, let's think about a couple of ways that we can um, make that more attractive to them. Um, first of all, the way that um, limits are good, um, we can see that in, in our desire to form any kind of relationships. Um, one of the saddest things about our culture is the way that it, it so emphasizes freedom um, and um, a, a very individual sort of freedom. Um, one theologian describes the hope for a, an unfettered liberty for self-creation. Unfettered, so no change, no attachments, and simply self-creation. Um, my, um, my duty, my responsibility, my only hope of happiness is to, is to be me and to give full expression to me. Compare that with the world of Genesis that teaches us that actually we are created in relationship with each other, that we look around and see other human beings made in the image of God, and we are created to know and love a creator. Um, we are focused outward um, rather than inward on ourselves and this project me. Um, that is actually a much more beautiful thought um, to set out on life thinking that is my calling to love those beside me to worship a God above me knowing him as he is and that generous creator rather than thinking I want to throw off every kind of constraint um, no relationship is going to be possible if we think that's um, how I'm going to be happiest um, the 
the joy of romantic relationships is entirely of being bound to another, of imposing limits on myself that I might be faithful to another and enjoy um, that, um, that relationship. Um, likewise, the, the bonds that we receive, that we don't do anything about, but we are born into a family, we have mothers and fathers and siblings and children, um, and those are part of God's good design for us. Um, if every single one of us just declared that unfettered freedom, then we would enjoy none of those good things. Um, it's not surprising that there is such profound loneliness in a culture that has been taught to be you and to pursue that at all, at all costs. Um, so that's one way, I think, one way in to highlight the, the threat of utter loneliness and selfishness um, that is behind a lot of what we're encouraged to think. Um, and then there is a givenness in being created male and female. It means that there's not something that we need to try and create and sustain and achieve for ourselves. Um, and that is enormously restful. Um, so, um, so much of how we're presented with what it ought to be to be male or to be female is something to try and attain to, to get that body, to look like that, to have that set of accomplishments and achievements. Um, and yet that's always something ahead of me, something that I'm always restlessly seeking after and something that I'm always in competition with other people because um, I, I need to try and be the top. Whereas Genesis teaches us that simply by virtue of our birth, we are born male and female, and that means I don't have to be Bear Grylls. I don't, know, I don't have to grill bears. I don't, I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to look a certain way in order to be able to say, I am really a man. I'm, I'm a man by virtue of my birth. You are female. If you've been born female, um, you are a woman. And so there's no need to try and perform and achieve um, there's a real restfulness um, that comes from that. Genesis, in that way, it cuts through the idea that we need to achieve and perform something. We are, by virtue of our creation, made in the image of God, a male and female. And that means that when the hope of ever having that sort of body goes, I haven't lost anything. I am still made in the image of God, and I still have value. Um, as age and sickness take hold, I won't become anything less than human. I am made in the image of God, male or female, and that is fixed, that is given to me, and nothing can take that away from me. That's a restful place to be. So one of the, one of the challenges that we have as we, as we try and communicate this well in the world is to help people see that um, we are born in those two forms, male or female, and that that is not something inherently oppressive to us. Actually, there is a goodness to that, um, a goodness that teaches us to recognize the image of God in others um, and to, to receive a given identity um, from God, being created male or female. Now, uh, two objections that might get raised at that point, we've gone as far as saying human beings are created male and female. Um, two different objections. Um, first one is a, is a much more popular one outside of the church, and that is to raise the question of intersex conditions. I don't know if you've heard of um, intersex conditions. It actually appears in the LGBTQI. Once you get to I, that usually stands for intersex. Um, it doesn't really belong, though, in that list of, um, uh, of letters. Um, when we speak about intersex conditions properly, what we're describing are 
um, a range of chromosomal or developmental abnormalities that affect the development of sexual organs um, and um, very often um, are apparent at birth, um, but sometimes are only discovered later in life when somebody goes through puberty. Sometimes people go through the whole of life not knowing that they are intersex. Um, a lot is made of people who are intersex. Um, you'll hear this, the statistic that 1.7 of the population are intersex. And the argument often made is, well, there you are, not simply male and female, but there's also a third category um, called intersex. Um, the name itself sort of implies you're between, you're inter-male and female. Um, you can see a couple of quotes on the handout where people are arguing, this does away with the male-female binary. So um, intersexual people are the best biological evidence we have that the binary gender construct is totally inadequate and is causing terrific injustice and unnecessary suffering. Um, or um, Megan DeFranza writing, a sim the simplistic binary model is no longer sufficient um, because of the existence of people who are intersex. Um, now, as I say, um, about 1.7% of the population have some sort of intersex condition. Um, in the vast, vast majority, the 99% of those Actually, somebody's maleness or femaleness is not in question at all. Um, there are a whole range of different conditions that can cause somebody's sexual organs to be less developed or their bodies to be less responsive to hormones, um, and that can produce a range of effects. But in 99% of the cases, it's still utterly clear that somebody is male or female. Um, and so um, a lot of intersex people, rightly, I think, are very offended that their existence has been taken up to suggest that humanity doesn't come in two forms, male and female. We should be aware, though, of that 1% of the 1.7%, the very, very few people um, who are born um, with um, physical attributes that make it very hard to establish whether they are male or female. This is a very, very painful experience for a very, very few people. Um, it's, um, it's wrong to make too much of them in, in ways that the LGBT movement have. Um, we ought to recognize um, that it, they are nonetheless medical conditions that need some real care um, to, to know um, where they um, are in the life of the church, to know how to um, care and guide for people, and how to care and, and guide people in those sorts of um, situations. But they, but they do not overturn Genesis teaching that we are born male and female. Um, Jesus in, in Matthew's gospel um, does um, affirm that uh, we are male and female, um, as it's written in the beginning, he quotes Genesis. Um, he also then does speak about those who are eunuchs from birth. Um, now, I don't think there he's speaking specifically about intersex conditions, that doesn't immediately map on. But what Jesus is describing there is a gender binary, male and female he created them, and the awareness that with the fall comes some really terrible situations um, and, um, and some um, diseases and conditions that mean um, that people aren't always born um, healthily. So they, it doesn't overturn the, the gender binary. Um, it is something to be, um, to be aware of. That's one objection that's often raised. Um, the second, and this comes often from um, more within the church and those who are wanting to be much more progressive, um, they want to suggest that, yes, Genesis says that we're born male and female, but actually the, um, uh, the, 
the New Testament moves us away from that. Um, and they'll point to, to a couple of texts that you've got on your handout. Um, the first one is um, from Galatians chapter 3, um, where we read that... Um, if, if I could just borrow that handout for a second. don't have that in my notes. Thank you. Uh, Paul writes, All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Aha, they say. Um, yes, it's there in Genesis, but now, with the gospel, all of those categories are done away with. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male and female. And so the church ought not to be so hung up on these categories of male and female. Um, we can set them aside. Uh, several problems with that, though, from Galatians. Um, the main, um, and perhaps the most helpful way to see the problem with it is just to look around verse 28. What else does Paul describe there? Um, he describes Jew and Gentile, slave and free. Are those categories completely destroyed in Paul's mind? Not at all. He will say to the Gentiles that he writes to, you are Gentiles and you've been grafted into Israel and you must not boast and brag about the fact that Israel have turned away and you Gentiles have been included. Um, he will even call the, the Galatians Gentiles. Those categories do still exist. It's meaningful that somebody is from a Jewish or a, or a Gentile background. Likewise, slave or free. Paul isn't just declaring those things completely meaningless. He will write to masters and tell them how they ought to treat their slaves. He will write to slaves and tell them how to, um, how to respect their masters. Paul doesn't think those categories are completely wiped away. His point here is that if you've been baptized into Christ, then those things tell you absolutely nothing about your value in the church or your, your place in salvation. You are all one. So here in this church, united by the Lord Jesus, we are all one whether you are male or female, um, whatever your background is, um, we are one by faith in Jesus. That is really important. Um, those categories, they still matter. They still have significance for us, um, but they don't teach us who has more value than others around here. Okay? Galatians chapter 3. The other passage that people turn to is Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30. At the resurrection, this is Jesus speaking, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. I don't know quite what that means, um, but I do not think it means that we will be sexless. We will be no longer male or female. Um, few reasons for thinking that. First of all, think about the resurrection of Jesus himself. We're told that we will be like him, and he is raised with a male body, recognizably the same Jesus um, as um, the one who walked this earth. Um, what Jesus is certainly ruling out is the thought that we will marry in heaven. Um, marriage is an earthly institution. It is designed to be that great signpost of the relationship between Christ and his church. And when we get to the new creation, there will no longer be marriage. We will be um, the bride of Christ. We will look forward to that great wedding supper. So human marriage um, won't continue on into, into the new creation. That much is clear. Um, but I, um, I don't think that here, and it's probably in that sense that we won't be like, that we will be like the angels in heaven, um, not marrying um, the phrasing of that verse even suggests that actually um, we will still be male and female. Notice how there are male and female options described there. 
At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Um, that's what you do if you're male and then if you're female. You marry or you are given in marriage. Jesus seems to be saying that whether you are male or female in the new creation at the resurrection, what you won't do is marry. And my best guess is that's what it means that you're not like the angels. Um, you won't marry. But as I say, people do turn to those passages to try and say, yes, it might be there in Genesis, but as you move through the Bible, it starts to sit more loosely to these categories of male and female, and so the church ought not to be so concerned about them. Um, and um, that, I think, is, um, is wrong. Um, the, the significance of being born male and female, imaging God, um, remains. Let's, let's pause there, partly just to give you a little break from my voice for a moment. Um, just gather any questions that you've got or something that struck you so far. Just a moment to pause. Jot down a question or jot down something you found helpful so far. Very happy to pause. Yes, Sam. Uh, so um, the question is, are we going to comment on the thought that, um, bio um, that biology isn't that clearly... Okay, so, um, so the kind of question of genetics. Um, so not... Um, I wasn't planning to say lots about this. Um, one, of the, one of the arguments that you'll often hear is that there might be a um, physical sex, um, your, your sexual organs point in one direction, but that it is possible that your brain is sexed in a different way. Um, so the, the brain sex theory says that you might have a female-wired brain inside a male body. Um, that idea is, is very disputed and, and not at all proven. So um, one of the complicated things is the ways that actually brains are pretty individual, and then brains are also um, quite plastic. Um, they actually change and develop over time, and that makes that idea very, very complicated. Um, the idea that um, you're, as best as I understand it, and I am no expert on some of these things, so thank you, Sam. Um, uh, that the, um, I don't know of arguments that suggest that there is a, um, a the possibility of genetically being one sex, um, and um, and that being separate from the body that those genes um, are the code for and produce. So there are some of those intersex conditions um, uh, are caused by various um, abnormalities in your chromosomes. Um, more than that, I don't think I'm, um, I, I think would be helpful to say, at least not by me. Um, somebody else can help us. All right. Let's, um, let's come back into, into Genesis then. What have we said so far? We've said the Bible presents a world that actually isn't a, a big power play, um, that there are real, true categories given by a good and generous God. And, uh, um, and so male and female are the two forms that human beings are, um, are created in. Um, one of the questions then will, that will come out is if we're, if we're saying there is male and female, um, how do we not go back to essentially a patriarchy, um, a view of the world um, that is um, inherently oppressive and particularly oppressive towards women? Um, and so 
Um, here, people might point to the fact that um, Eve is created as Adam's helper um, and, and, and read into that the idea that she's simply some sort of assistant to him. Um, and in other ways, we'll see the Bible trending in a, in a way that is oppressive, particularly towards women. Um, so um, let's think about men and women equal and yet distinct. Um, the equality of men and women comes through very, very strongly in Genesis. Um, so male and female, he created them. Um, and um, then um, in chapter 2, verse 23, um, you've got um, Adam's great celebration. Um, here is the first um, poem in the Bible. Here is the first um, great celebration. Uh, and um, what is it that Adam says? Not she's so different from me, but wonderfully she is like me. Compared to all of the other animals that have been presented to him as a potential helper, verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. What Adam celebrates is her likeness to him. Um, that's really important, that old idea that um, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. It's not true. We're not from separate planets. We're not separate species. Um, we are both um, made of the same stuff. Um, and we are like one another. Um, so um, sharing equally in the image of God, um, that's very distinctive. In most um, stories that were told in the ancient world about creation, um, you usually heard about the creation of men, and women are not even mentioned as being created. Um, and yet here, Genesis puts that front and center, male and female, both, um, uh, both made in the image of God. And that's something that the whole Bible holds on to. So that passage I mentioned earlier on, Matthew 19, um, Jesus says there, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? Um, so an equality between men and women that is essential to maintain. Um, they are equal. Um, they are also distinct. Um, why is that important? Well, the first and most obvious reason in Genesis 1 and 2 um, is that command that God gives to fill um, the world, um, to multiply. And that is something that Adam cannot do by himself. Um, and so um, the basic difference between men and women, um, the, the, the potential to create life together and the individual contribution that the two make, um, that is the, the basic difference. And in that sense, they are not different from each other, but different for each other. And um, that together they are able to, um, to come together and to, to create life. Um, and so to, um, uh, to, um, to fill the earth. One of the tricky questions, um, really the big tricky question, is whether there are other differences between men and women apart from that, that simple biological reality. Um, it touches, obviously, on lots of um, big debates. Um, we might think, for example, about um, those of us with children or those of us who are godparents or those of us just involved in the life of young children. Um, how do we encourage them to grow up? Do we think there is something different where we have a boy and a girl in the sorts of things that we're going to encourage them into, in the sorts of play that we think is appropriate, in the sort of dress that we think is appropriate? Um, how do we navigate that question? Um, how do we feel about some of the big gender imbalances that there are in the world? Um, the number of women who are physics professors, for example, um, are very much fewer than those um, who are male. Um, if we don't think that there are hardwired differences um, between men and women, we're going to see that simply as an issue of injustice. 
Why is that so, and how can we make it 50-50? So some sort of injustice or imbalance would be implied um, unless we think there is something that naturally trends um, men in that direction and women in that direction. Um, To use a different example, the prison population. Um, 95% of the prison population are male. Is that a gender imbalance that we should try and adjust? Is that a scandal? Um, Are we discriminating against men that a vast majority of the prison population are male rather than female? Or does it teach us something about the nature of men that though they are not more sinful than women, um, they are more likely to sin in ways that break things and hurt people? Possibly. Um, Gender imbalances, how do we um, make sense of some of those? Um, As you can imagine, there are lots of scientific studies out there and they are um, pretty controversial um, in every direction. Um, people are going to um, try and argue and find evidence for, for what they think. There are, though, some, um, some persuasive studies that do show across cultures um, something of a general distribution um, where, um, as you look at um, men and women, and um, how they relate, and the sorts of skills and faculties that they have. Um, Generally speaking, it is true to say that women have greater empathy, greater verbal ability and intuition, greater social skills, and they maintain and strengthen family bonds um, in a way much more so than men. Men, on the other hand, are generally speaking more risk-taking, more competitive, Um, take more initiative and more aggressive, they will focus more on goals, and they will build relationships more with peers than with family members. Let me step back from the brink. Um, I am not suggesting here that that is true of every man here or every woman here. Um, What we're doing is describing trends that are generally true across a um, a big population. In just the same way that height is not simply men are taller than women. Um, If we did that exercise of having the tallest person over here and the shortest person over here, what are you going to get? Well, you're going to get largely men at that end, but not exclusively. Um, There is going to be some real mix because not everybody sits in two very separate camps. Um, But generally speaking, you see something of that sort of distribution One of the interesting studies is to look at um, countries where there is the most freedom for young people to do what they want to do when they grow up. So in lots of cultures, of course, you are bound um, to take up your parents' profession um, or the expectation is that you will do this role in in society. But in societies where where there is the maximum freedom to choose, you still find very gendered professions working their way out. Um, that women do, not exclusively, um, but generally speaking, they are drawn more towards caring professions um, and men towards um, some of the other kind of classic male, um, the engineering um, sorts of roles, um, um, uh, those sorts of of things. Now, um, of course, what we want to ask actually is not just is, is there some evidence of that out there? But what do the scriptures say about this? Um, can you see this sort of thing in the Bible? Um, let's look at a few passages together. Um, first of all, um, here's... Uh, we can, there we go. Here's um, Isaiah 49, verse 15. I'm not going to look at all of these verses, but here are some. 
Um, here is um, God speaking. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Um, so here is God speaking, God speaking about his people and um, making this analogy to the mother who cares for her child, who has compassion for her baby. Um, does that imply that men don't have compassion? No. Um, does um, this speak particularly of motherhood rather than womanhood generally? Yes, it does. Um, at the same time, it does seem to say that you can characterize what a mother is generally like. You can experience um, compassion um, from the mother. Um, likewise, Isaiah 66, verse 13, um, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. Um, if you picture a mother, there is a characteristic trait, and it is that of compassion. Um, let's uh, move on um, through... What's the next verse on your handout? 1 Thessalonians 2, 7-8. Thank you. Um, here they are. Um, just, as a uh, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Here is Paul talking about the ministry that he exercised in Thessalonica. And again, he's drawing on these characteristic traits. As a nursing mother, we cared for you. As a father deals with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and urged you. Notice that there's some overlap there, um, that actually both of them are caring. Um, so encouraging and comforting, that's fatherly. So we mustn't start to think, mums are really compassionate, dads are kind of harsh and authoritarian. No, there's some overlap here. Um, but there are some characteristics. That urging um, seems to be the most distinctive fatherly thing to do, that exhortation, um, whereas the mother is the one who cares. Okay? So the recognition of some different characteristics. Then remember who's speaking. The Apostle Paul is speaking. And he is saying, we were like a mother and we were like a father. So Paul is not saying that you have to dig deep down into your gender stereotypes and be the kind of extreme version of it. He's able to recognize there are things that are distinctively male and female about how we might relate to each other and to say, that there are ways in which we can rightly embody both of those characteristics ourselves, that there is something to learn from the other sex, um, that um, a man might seek to emulate some of the more feminine characteristics and vice versa, because there are things to learn from each other in all of that. Um, let me show you one more example of that. Um, it's in that phrase, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Um, it's a phrase that comes up a lot in the Old Testament, and if you look through all of those verses, you'll find um, it is almost always spoken to male soldiers who are about to go and fight, or to sons. Um, so particularly David speaking to Solomon. Um, so the charge in the Old Testament to be strong and courageous is almost always addressed to those men who are called to fight and to lead. Um, until you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13 where the same sort of language comes up. Um, just see how it comes out in the NIV. Um, 1 Corinthians um, 16, 
verse 13. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Um, in fact, um, there's, a, there's a verb tucked away in there that literally means act like a man, um, be a man. In other words, be strong and courageous. Um, be the sorts of things that characterize a man. And then remember who Paul is writing to. Um, he's writing to a whole church. He's writing to a church made up of men and women. Um, and so he can both say there is an attribute that is characteristically male, and he can encourage a whole church to try and pursue that and embody that. So do you see the same sort of pattern where um, there is something that you can describe as male and female in general terms, um, but those are not exclusively the, the preserve of men and women. And one of the opportunities we've got for, to learn from each other is in those very ways that we are different. So, um, it seems to me from the scriptures, there's a bit more that we could say, but time is getting short. Um, men and women are both clearly equal and yet are distinct. Um, let me try and draw together some implications and then um, we'll um, need to start wrapping up. Um, firstly, we've seen the basic either or of male and female is part of God's good design for creation. Um, so it is a good gift from a creator to be made um, to um, be something by virtue of um, our creation rather than making ourselves and creating ourselves. One of the things that flows from seeing that as a good gift from God is the thought that we, haven't, we won't come up with something better, that we ought not to invert or blur created distinctions. Um, so we ought not to worship created things instead of the creator. That would be a way to turn creation's order upside down. Uh, nor should we blur created distinctions. Um, so Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5 says, A woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women's clothing, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. Um, to, um, to try and overturn or to blur the distinctions that God has made um, is, a, is a wicked thing to do. Um, and so um, uh, Paul, uh, for rather um, here, Moses speaks about um, not blurring those distinctions. And something similar will come through in 1 Corinthians um, where Paul is talking about um, the, the distinct um, ways in which men and women dress. Um, now, in, in that situation in particular, what you're dealing with is kind of cultural expectations of how a man or a woman might dress. Um, and this gets complicated, doesn't it? Um, different cultures have different ways of trying to preserve the difference between male and female, but they are different in different cultures. Um, so, in some cultures, it would signify um, something if I walked down the street hand in hand with another man. Um, in lots of cultures, that would simply signify friendship. Um, it's just a natural, normal way of, um, um, of conducting yourself. In this culture, it might signify something different. Um, likewise, um, wearing skirts, kilts in different cultures, that signifies something slightly different about um, men and women and, and how they dress. Um, so, there's... Um, there's an important aspect here of trying to think, how does our culture embody what it is to be male and female, and how can I seek to, to demonstrate that I live within that, rather than actively trying to subvert it? Where it gets trickier, of course, is where a culture gets more and more experimental and muddled about the difference between men and women. 
Um, so we can't always rely on a culture's own kind of codes for how you express um, masculinity or femininity. Um, so um, it, gets, um, it gets tricky. Um, but it's, um, it's something that we need to pursue, not inverting or blurring created distinctions. Third, <clears throat> the Bible is much less prescriptive about what masculinity or femininity looks like than our culture. Um, I think that is right to say. Um, it's one of the curious things about our culture that it emphasizes so much how gender is very fluid, and yet almost everything is very, very tightly coded, male or female. Um, toys basically only come in two colors, and I don't understand that. Why are they only ever blue or pink? when actually the nature of the toy is not at all gender-specific. Um, anyone might play with that, but it comes blue or pink. Um, stereotypes do um, uh, become very, very prescriptive in our culture. We have very tight ideas of what the perfect woman or the perfect man looks like, much more so than the Bible gives us a particular template of what you should be or look like. And as we've explored in this um, little series, those things can be crushing. Um, to feel that weight of expectation, particularly amongst young women, um, the proportion of young women coming forward for gender surgery in some way is vastly outstrips boys. Um, so at the moment, it's about three times as many young women are coming forward as kind of children and teenagers. Um, one of the reasons for that, I think, is, is simply the, um, the pornification of society, the, the very clear and heavy expectations that there are that you ought to look like this, and if you're going to be a woman, you need to act like this. And I can un completely understand the appeal of opting out of that and saying, if that's what it is, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to have to live that way. Um, these um, very strong stereotypes can be leveraged to make people question their gender by people as well. Um, so there's one definition of gender dysphoria that says you, you experience gender dysphoria if you are unhappy with your given gender or its stereotypes. If you're unhappy with your given gender and its stereotypes. On that definition, I would qualify. I am not at all comfortable with some masculine stereotypes, um, and, uh, but yet People are being encouraged to think, I don't like those stereotypes, therefore, perhaps I'm not the sex that I thought I was. And that's, that's an utter, utter confusion. What we must do is help people feel more free from those stereotypes that have been created, to know that you don't have to look like that, or be like that, or act like that, to be male or female. Um, it's something that we need to um, be very wary of in the church. Um, I am not, for example, a great fan of gendered Bibles. Um, in ways that seem to say there are very specific different concerns um, if you're male and female, because almost inevitably um, the, the, the Bible marketed at women, it's going to be nice pastel colors and flowers, and some women are not going to think that is anything like what the sort of book they want to pick up. Um, in Christian youth work, um, you can completely understand, if I had 300 kids and I had to entertain them for a couple of hours, I might well do this, but our, our kids have been to things where you're told very clearly, Girls are going to do crafts, boys are going to go play football. Now, I get that it's the neatest way of dividing and conquering um, to, to split down male-female lines, but we reinforce the thought that that's what girls like and that's what boys like. It's not at all helpful. Um, or if you'd open your hymn books and turn to page, uh, to hymn number 523. Um, I found this recently. 
Shaking mats and mopping floors in the house and out of doors, washing, cooking, cleaning too, these are things that girls can do. I'll do it all for Jesus. I'll do it all for Jesus. He did so much for me. Boys can be as handy too, with a hammer, saw and screw, mowing lawns and pulling weeds, doing good and helpful deeds. The Bible is much, much less prescriptive about what it looks like to be male and female than um, a lot of what is happening in culture and sometimes what happens in churches. As we said, that doesn't mean that we want to um, ignore those differences. They are real. Um, and we want to try and find ways to rightly express those differences. But we also must, must help people enjoy the freedom from, from finding those things oppressive. Um, here's, um, here's a quote that we'll finish with by Oliver O'Donovan. Uh, he's a, um, a theologian writing very carefully on ethics. He wrote a book about um, trans... I think the book is actually called Transsexualism, but he's writing about this issue um, and was writing back in the 80s before hardly anyone was thinking about it. And um, he writes this. The either-or of biological maleness and femaleness to which the human race is bound is not a meaningless or oppressive condition of nature. It is the good gift of God because it gives rise to possibilities of relationship in which the polarities of masculine and feminine, more subtly nuanced than the biological differentiation, can play a decisive part. Just pause there because it's a bit complicated. Um, He's saying you've got... An either-or, male and female. And that is not meaningless or oppressive. Um, Instead, it it allows for something more subtle to be expressed. You've got male and female. That is black and white. It's either-or. But then there's another um, pair, masculinity and femininity. And that's more subtle. Um, And out of those basic realities of being male and female, masculinity and femininity can come to be expressed. That last sentence. Through masculinity and femininity, we claim the significance of maleness and femaleness for relationship and give it, through relationship, an interpretation which can express our individuality as persons. So we are all of us male or female, but there are different ways that within a particular culture and given who God has made us to be, we are going to find ways to express that maleness or femaleness in masculinity and femininity. Um, That is a really nice way of saying um, how I think about myself and present myself to the world. It is grounded in whether I am male or female, but that doesn't give me a very tight script of this is what I must be, this is what I must do, this is what I must look like. And that's so, so liberating, and we must, must hold on to that. Okay, Um, our time um, has gone. We started a little late, so I'm not feeling too bad about that. I would love it if you could take two minutes Um, to jot down anything in that box at the end. Um, Questions that you've got um, about what this means to um, love and care for people who identify as trans um, or other ways in which this might touch on church life. You might just like to write down a question that you're thinking, I don't know if we're going to cover this next week. Please, can we cover it? Um, If you want to write those things down, and then you could either just tear that last little bit of the handout off Um, and leave it on tables, um, and I can gather those up and make sure we cover it next week. Um, Or drop me an email um, and um, and let me know what those those questions are. But let me give you 
A couple of minutes just to jot something down. Um, if you really do need to get away, please do free for you to get away. Um, but we'll, we'll take two minutes to do that, uh, and then um, we'll sing a final song. As we close. Heavenly Father, how we do praise you as our good and generous creator and sustainer. And Father, we praise you for that. We praise you for um, the life that you have given us. Thank you for um, our life as a church family that means as um, male and female, as brother and sister, we can um, learn from one another and we can, um, we can bear your image together. And Father, we pray that please you'd help us to reflect well on these things, um, where things that have been said that might not be helpful or true, Father, would you um, please help us to set those aside, where things that have been helpful um, Father, might you help us to reflect on them together, um, to, um, to think what it means for us um, to celebrate the goodness of being made in your image, male and female, and how to hold out the goodness of that to this world. So be our helper, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.